Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and with a Canadian election looming, I wanted to talk to somebody who really has a good understanding of this country, of all the different undercurrents that are not only shaping this election, but our general national conversation. And for that, I went to a guest that those of you who listen to this podcast regularly will have heard before. His name is Bill Gardner, and he is a Canadian best-selling author who's written books like The Trouble with Canada, The Trouble with Democracy, The War on the Family. He's uh, interestingly a retired track and field athlete who represented Canada in the men's 400-meter hurdles and the men's decathlon at the 1964 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, Japan. And he was awarded a silver medal in the decathlon event at the 1963 Pan American Games in Brazil. But he is now most well-known for his books, for his commentary. He is a very succinct commentator and has a very in-depth understanding of Canada and what makes this nation what it is, or is it a nation at all? Anyways, I hope you find this conversation as enlightening as I did. Here is my discussion with Bill Gardner. Well, Bill, it's great to have you uh, on the podcast again. We, we've had a couple of conversations about your various best-selling books on the situation in Canada, and things have been changing so quickly, and, and the the life that we've seen um, unfold over the last year and a half has been so bizarre. I wanted to have another conversation uh, with somebody, especially somebody who's uh, been obsessed with with the Canadian Constitution and Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Just give us your analysis. Where do you see us as as where where do you see Canada um, as having as having been, and and where are we right now in the middle of this this pandemic election? Let's just say I think it's been an arresting and confusing experience for millions of people who have never seen government operate all out as we are doing. I mean to say they've never before uh, seen what in the past people would have described as a totalitarian mindset. And uh, this is new for this generation. And I think one of the reasons that we're seeing it is because the, the COVID threat is basically invisible. And so a lot of the typical libertarian protections that we have invoked over the years to, well, to protect ourselves against undue authority have evaporated because the virus is invisible. We don't know who has it. It's not like, say, Jewish people walking around with a yellow star in the Nazi era or any other uh, group of people who've been marked marked out for persecution by their race or their religion or the books they read or anything like that, this is an invisible threat. And so the full panoply of government action can be brought to bear and justified by governments, and the citizens are bereft of a proper complaint against it except to say something like, I don't want to be vaccinated. You know, my body, my choice, that kind of thing. Don't tell me what I have to put in my body. But when the government comes along and says, we're doing it because you're a threat to others, their defenses collapse. One of the things I wanted your insight on, because I, I will say that one of one of the interesting aspects of this is this pandemic hits when almost every province in, in, the, in the country is run by a conservative premier. And certainly the biggest provinces, with the, of course, notable exception of British Columbia, 
where the NDP called the snap pandemic election just to get a majority, right? Everybody has to stay inside their homes. Nobody can go to church, but we can all have an election if it suits the politicians and gets them gets them what they want. But one of the things I find interesting too is is, is a lot of people are looking at the various restrictions. And it, it, from where I'm sitting, it looks like people like Doug Ford and Jason Kenney genuinely feel like that they're being forced into implementing various lockdown measures, et cetera, that they resist for a long time and then buckle. Like Doug Ford in, in particular has reduced his career to tatters because he's done, you know, he's he's managed to make everybody angry by insisting he won't do something and making all of the, you know, the safety nicks really upset and then turning around and doing it, making all of the libertarians upset and therefore satisfying absolutely nobody because it's too little too late or it's too much. And so what, what is your analysis of, of how COVID-19 has, has just affected the way all politicians respond to things? Because part of me just, part of me thinks that this is a cynical political calculation where they say, yes, we might be giving up too many civil liberties. No, this might not be the right response. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be responsible for a whole bunch of bodies. I don't want to be responsible for the sort of thing that Governor Andrew Cuomo was responsible for in New York. You know, where, where nearly 15,000 people died in, in, in long-term care homes. And so I'm just going to do this now and just and just ride it out and see what happens. What's your take on all of this? I think it's the first time in our recent memory that the pop, whole population has, has been exposed to the fragility of civil liberties. We haven't had a situation like this other than during the Second World War and so on in which civil liberties were even really serious, seriously threatened. And now they're simply being trampled everywhere in the name of an invisible threat. And I, I think people are confused. They don't know what to make of it. And when it comes to the parties, I mean, look at this election. There are some distinctions between the parties. But what makes politics, I think, very difficult in any country where there are more than two parties, I mean, I think this is a an accurate assessment of our situation. If you have a multi-party country, everyone tries to hug the middle. In other words, they try to be as alike as alike each other as they can without actually being like each other. <laughs> so we're we're walking a very narrow line between the parties. Whereas in a two-party state, as in the USA, I realize there are more parties than two there, but the main parties are only two. Democrats and Republicans. What you get in those kind of countries is people try to be, the parties try to be as different from each other as possible, not as similar to each other as possible as we have here. So it's easier for someone to say, well, I'm going to be a Democrat or I'm going to be a Republican. And, you know, I'm very different from you. Whereas in Canada, it's really hard to find the distinction, meaningful distinctions in the party platforms. That's assuming they're not lying. Now, one of the, the things I, I really wanted to talk to you about is, is what Justin Trudeau is doing with this election, which I think is extremely dangerous. Because regardless of what your opinion of, of, of how much of a threat COVID is, you know, whether or not people should get vaccinated, all those things, all of those things aside, what Trudeau is doing in terms of using mandatory vaccination purely as a wedge issue, right? Which is what he did. He basically, he basically sat on the idea of, of mandating vaccines for domestic air travel and train travel, and then rolled it out with an unnecessary election because the NDP has been giving him a blank check 
you know, since since the beginning of the pandemic. So there was no reason to bring everybody to the polls. And then he started foaming at the mouth of various uh, campaign events, talking about how those people, his exact words, shouldn't be allowed to sit next to, you know, his people, presumably, you know, on a plane, a train, etc. And and it's 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 really it's kind of nerve wracking to watch him do this because he's basically talking about, he's talking about these people as if like, you know, they're infectious and dirty and he's angry when he's talking. Right. And it's kind of interesting because Trudeau is, is, is like, I find him to be a very fake. I've seen him speak in person a few times and he's a very theatrical and sort of fake speaker, except for on a handful of issues where you see him get genuinely passionate and angry. One of them is abortion which he's he's always been fairly obsessed with. But this is another one where, you know, he actually works himself up while he's doing this. What's your take? Have you ever seen anything like this in your decades of observing politics where somebody is so obviously demonizing one section of the population just for for political purposes, just to get a majority government? Yeah, I think we've seen it before. And in, in general, I see this election as a vanity election. I, I think... Trudeau is a vain person. I think he grew up sheltered from real life by his family reputation and heritage and so on. And that's how he became prime minister. He's also a very interesting kid and he is still just a kid. Like when he, when he punched that, when he punched that guy out in Ottawa in a boxing match. Yeah. Yeah. The conservative Senator. That symbolically, that was a big deal. I mean, anyone who thrills through athletics is going, that's some dude. He takes on the threat and clips him and knocks him out, whatever. Uh, you know, it was a symbolic move. And just like when when his father died, you know, there was Justin Trudeau draping himself all over the coffin, making a, making a speech not to his father or his father's memory. I mean, I don't want to tread too deeply into this because it wasn't my father, you know, and certainly he had genuine emotions about it. But it seemed to me like he was performing for the cameras, and and he knew it, you know, high school drama teacher. And now he's performing again, but I think he's miscalculated. I think he's going to lose the election myself. I think people want somebody more steady, more true, more with their hand on the tiller of the economy, and who can talk common sense without going off the deep end emotionally. And I think that's probably O'Toole from a... Pro- program point of view, I like everything that Bernier is proposing, but I think I don't think I don't think a lot of it's going to happen in this country. Canadians are, I guess, are not ready for it. Uh, there's some true conservative and true libertarian proposals in his program, so I think probably what's going to happen. I'm just forecasting here. I think O'Toole is probably going to win the election and become the next prime minister because people are fed up with the vanity and. Um, the kiddie stuff that's coming from from Justin Trudeau. Incidentally, your listeners may be interested in knowing that when my book, The Trouble with Canada, still came out, which, of course, I recommend, because I think it's a very good book, better than the original, which was already pretty good, if you don't mind me saying so. I My publisher actually called me into the office and had me sign over 300 whatever copies, all in one shot in his office, and he packaged them up individually and sent them off in individual envelopes to each member of parliament. So every member of parliament got a copy of my book, but I only got a thank you letter from two of them. One of them, one of them was Prime, Prime Minister Harper, who wrote me back a lovely letter thanking me for the book and telling me that it was going to go in his personal library, not in the 
uh, parliamentary library, like you saw it as a personal gift. And the second letter I got was from a member of parliament named Justin Trudeau. It was written with a nice fountain pen. You know, that's kind of classy. It wasn't a little year old cheapo ballpoint, ball, ball you know, on a nice piece of government letter, uh, a nice government sort of greeting card. And here's what he said. He said, Dear Mr. Gardner, thank you very much for the gift of your book. I'm not sure I will agree with any of your ideas, but I look forward to challenging myself. And I said, I said, you know, that's that's pretty good from a member of parliament. He was still not that well known at the time. So three months later, I wrote him back and I asked if he'd had an opportunity to challenge himself and of course, I never heard back. But that's just a little tidbit on, on the uh, mentality of our prime minister. He did write the letter. What's interesting, because you've written so much about, about Canada specifically, and what I'm wondering when you say, you know, I like Maxime Bernier's agenda, but I don't, I don't think that it'll get much of a following here in Canada. One of the things I've been wondering when I look at, say, if you look especially at other Commonwealth countries like, like New Zealand and Australia, which if you want to see what, a, what an actual police state looks like, where you've got, you know, like cops in military grade uniforms tackling, you know, young men and women and forcibly putting masks on them while they're getting handcuffed. And like, it's just, it's just, it really is insane. And I, I've tried to hold myself somewhat back from, from, you know, letting, letting myself get too emotionally engaged with some of the imagery coming out from, from different places, because it's been so hard to keep a level head with the sheer volume of information that comes at you during this time. But it's it's really chilling what they're doing there. And even the Atlantic wrote an article just titled Australia has given up too much of its liberty. Right. And they're a solidly, you know, liberal magazine, not a right wing magazine, certainly not a libertarian magazine. Um, and I look at Canada as well. And Canada seems to be willing to give up so much of, of these things. So, of course, if you're in a bubble that's primarily conservative and libertarian, most of the people you know are going to be anti-lockdown. They are certainly going to be anti-vaccine you know, mandates and things like that. But if you look at the polling data, right, like the reason Trudeau's being so cynical is because he thinks the math works in his favor. And most of the polling has seemed to indicate that when it comes to safety precautions, no matter how draconian, no matter how many civil liberties that you have to violate on the way there, the majority of people are actually in favor of them, which means that unfortunately, when you talk about the totalitarian mindset, we have to remember, too, that a lot of times these things get voted for. What is your view of, of, like, is Canada dispositionally disinclined to libertarianism? Because I've often wondered when I look at the state of the Conservative Party as well, if that's, you know, if we can still call it that, if, if real conservatism of a genuine sort actually has a chance in this country or not, because it seems to me often that it, it really just doesn't have much of a shot. I don't really think it ever has. And I think what it's hard for people to grasp is that most of the language that deals with liberty in the West, and perhaps in many other countries too, although I think it's less of a topic there, most of the language that, I mean, when you, th you know, I'm really interested in these kinds of topics, by the way, because, for example, there's a huge difference between how the Greek, the ancient Greeks conceived of liberty and how, say, medieval English people conceived of liberty and how we do. I'll just give you an example. In ancient Greece, the whole idea of being free or to have liberty meant not to be a slave. I mean, they were massively slave societies. Greece was, you know, Athens. Rome was 
massively slave-based societies. And so the whole idea of freedom was not to be a slave. In other words, not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another. That's a very different thing from saying, as we do today, that being free means doing whatever you want, as long as you don't harm someone else. Now, the patrimony of that idea came from John Stuart Mill in the 19th century, and it's virtually infected. I use the word on purpose. It's infected every aspect of modern democratic societies and their conversations about what we call liberty. See, they don't, for example, they aren't saying we need to be free so that we can be good. Or we need to be free so that we can help others or create the good society. We need to be free so that we can do what we want. And we should be able to do whatever we want as long as we don't harm someone else. Now, that's a very meager, poverty-stricken notion of, of what liberty means, don't you think? I mean, doing whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else has nothing to do with the nature of society, nothing to do with the good of the country, and nothing to do with good government either. It doesn't even have anything to do with good government of yourself. It's just saying you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else. You can even harm yourself, right, and call it a good because you did it free because you did it freely. Now, these are, to me, fascinating conversations, which are not sufficiently engaged upon in public discourse. And I think one of the reasons is that most language about liberty in Canada, for example, today, and many other democracies, so-called democracies, is performative. It's something that we say to make ourselves and others feel good. It's something that we, that we say uh, to gather admiration from people around us, as if they're living in a kind of moral or political slavery, but we're not, right? So we talk, we talk that way. But but I've always argued, and I do so in my books, that there are three main wills, human wills that matter. There's the will to be free, the will to obey, and the will to control. And the weakest of these is the will to be free. I would say most human beings, and we're seeing this with COVID, have a much greater fascination with the idea of controlling other people than they do of being free themselves. Freedom actually scares most people. They don't know what to do with it. And one of the reasons is that in the West, we've lost our moral bearings over the years. Let's say over the decades, we've lost our moral bearings. We don't share them in, in any serious way anymore. Uh, even though we say, for example, that 70% or whatever the number is of Canadians are professing Christians. In fact, they're not. Most of them don't go to church except for holidays. They're nominal Christians. And the idea of, of Christian values, whatever you or anyone else may think of them, the idea that they permeate society is, is almost long gone, except they're here in a kind of residual way. You know, they're kind of like a phantom background against which we do operate. We do believe we should honor our mothers and our fathers. And if we think about God at all, you know, we think about one God, not 15 or 100 gods, like, say, the Hindus do, uh, that, sort of, that sort of thing. But I'm saying the language of liberty is pretty much performative, and we're seeing that in COVID, where, I mean, someone once said to me, I love the line, I, I, I said to an American, I said, What's, what do you think a Canadian is? And he said, a Canadian is an American on Valium, <laughs> which is a great line. But actually, I have another line myself. I think inside every Canadian is a little policeman. And inside every American is a little frontiersman. 
we have very different origins that's that uh, that way and that's why in the american in america you know the whole route of public discourse is very different it comes out of this idea of the declaration of independence and all that sort of thing and the frontier mentality that's why we have guns everywhere you're expected to arm yourself you know the the, the the biggest entity against which you want to defend yourself with a gun in America is not your neighbor. It's the friggin' government. That's how it all began. That's what the idea of a militia was in the American Constitution. You, you, you ought to defend yourself against big government because that is the danger. How do we know that? Because that's how the English treated us with their, and that's why we had our Tea Party in Boston and that kind of thing. Government is the threat, not necessarily your neighbor. And so on. Whereas in Canada, you know, everyone ran up here who didn't want to stay down there. And what's our slogan? It's it's not it's not you know it's peace, order, and good government rather than life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That's it. So those are very very different foundations for the with respect to the natures of our of our two nations. So you don't you don't you don't find the word liberty in Canada's in the British North America. I don't think the word liberty or freedom appears once. I may have to review that, but I I don't think that, and I've read the darn thing lots of times. You know, it's just, it's just not there because people assumed certain liberties, and they were mostly they were mostly inscribed in the common law, which was ancient in English life, and they just assumed uh, a kind of freedom. You know, my English historian friend Ian Gentles, he's a professor of history at York University. He says, Bill. He said in, in late medieval times and early modern times, the king in England had no right to enter anyone's private home without the permission of the owner. Wow. When you think today a policeman can walk up, you know, with some flimsy search warrant and walk right into your house and start running, rifling through all your stuff. When you look at Canada, because, you know, we said there's a difference between the Canadian nation and the American one. And sometimes I wonder if, if Canada actually, I don't think Canada is a nation in the real sense of how we understand nations. Because to some extent, multiculturalism has been so successful that there is no really like real homogenous view of, of how Canadians think. And, and, and an interesting example of that would be on social issues. So because, you know, the Winnipeg Free Press and the Toronto Star and the Vancouver Sun all say, for example, that Canada is a very pro-LGBT country, it's a very pro-choice country, you know, abortion is a settled debate. What they're talking about, actually, is post-Christian, like, Canadians of European uh, uh, descent, whereas even Global News published this really fascinating data set two years ago talking about how immigrants from East Asia, and so essentially non-white Canadians and new Canadians by massive margins, disapprove of almost all of those things. Many of them, it's not just that they're not on board with, you know, the new gender craze. It's, it's they're still not on board with same-sex marriage, a debate that, you know, every every other MP would, would consider long closed. But Canada very much operates in, in a series of silos. It's why, you know, Premier Patrick Brown, or sorry, Mayor Patrick Brown, who was going for Premier, got caught saying one thing about sex ed in Chinese and something else in English. And he's the one who got caught doing this. But most of the politicians do this, right? Justin Trudeau gets an enormous number of votes from traditionalist communities who I know from my experience in the pro-life movement are very pro-life, oppose almost his entire pelvic agenda. And at the same time, they simply don't vote on those issues. And so what you end up having is, 
is another 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 interesting thing is 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 that most new Canadians, many many new immigrant communities, they don't read the Star, they don't read the Free Press, they don't read the Globe and Mail. So you have all these newspapers that have the illusion of being you know, the voice of Canadians or a national newspaper, when in reality, you know, you've got the Hindi Times, you've got these, uh, you've got these newspapers being published in Punjabi and Urdu, you know, throughout, yes, through broad swaths of, you know, say Calgary and Toronto. And, and there was some really interesting data that indicated that huge numbers of these people just never, ever read an English language newspaper in their life in Canada. And so you have Trudeau speaking for all Canadians on a series of issues, whereas the data indicates that his position is actually, in some areas, a distinct minority, but because nobody can ever get enough people to care about the same issue, like liberty, like social conservative issues, which are not nearly as unpopular as, 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 as the media would have us believe, but we're kind of stuck because we... Nobody has a collective identity, an idea of what that identity means, right? When somebody says like, I'm an American, that means something. When you say you're a Canadian, it really doesn't mean anything. Well, it means, it means less in America now too, I have to say, and I'm listening to you and I think you put your finger on a lot of hot, hot button topics, which happen to fascinate me and about which I've written quite a bit. But, you know, somewhere in my Trouble with Canada still book, I have the numbers, which I'm going to mention and I may have to look them up to see what they actually are. But I think in nineteen in the 1980s or early 1990s, our own government told us that there were six or seven, what they called, quote, ethnic enclaves, unquote, in Canada. But by 2010 or 2012, there were 265 ethnic enclaves in Canada. So this is feeding into what you're saying. And it also echoes what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself has said, echoing his father, by the way, who said Canada is the first post-national state. I mean, what what in the name of heaven is he talking about, a post-national state? I mean, in 1648 at the Treaty of Westphalia, the religious wars of Europe were brought to an end by the notion, the idea, which is still here, that nations should have national rights and firm borders, not loosey-goosey borders like they used to have, where you could run across and raid the next guy and go back home on the weekend, you know, after killing hundreds of people uh, for your God or whatever it is you were pretending you were killing them for. The, the, the idea of the nation state stopped a lot of that until we got, you know, the ideological movements of the 20th century. So the West, the, the Treaty of Westphalia, I think, is still here. It's still very powerful. But people like Trudeau Jr. are trying to rid us of it. But calling Canada the first post-national state, he's basically saying we have no ethnicity, we have no national character, we have no national religion, uh, we don't even have a national language. Well, we supposedly have two of them, but I think he's just fine with having any number of them. So there's a whole bunch of these so-called globalists running around these days with their, well, they were before COVID, with their airplane tickets and their black briefcases, hip-hopping all over the world, talking to each other at various conferences like Davos and all the rest of it, making plans for the global community, which, of course, will be the world's first ever bureaucratic state. It won't have a nationality. It'll be run by professionals pulled from all sorts of countries of the world who will be designing the globe for the rest of us. And we'll be happy to rid us of religion and nationality and ethnicity. And that's, that's what's going on in Canada. Canada sees itself as a leader in this little adventure. And I personally think it's disastrous. 
because it implies all sorts of other things which have to go if you start getting rid of nationalism. For example, your roots in religion have to go. And, you know, morality sits on top of religion, and politics sits on top of morality. So once you get rid of uh, a national religion or a core religion in any, in any country, you're asking for trouble, the breakdown of the whole moral system, meaning no more shared values and that sort of thing. And so countries begin to fall apart. Well, administrators who are secular by nature, they love that because they don't want you to have shared values. They want you to have their values, which are basically bureaucratic values. And what is Canada celebrating today? Not its not its moral nature, not its its behavior. Canada is celebrating things like medical care. And by the way, and parenth- parenthetically, medical care, which is the big banner glory of the Canadian of the modern Canadian. I'm not going to call it the state anymore because nobody's calling it that. You can't even call it a country except geographically. Medical care is the big banner boy, uh, poster boy for what it means to be a Canadian. But, you know, when medical care started, I'm talking now in the 70s and 80s. I'm just taking the province of Ontario, but you could make this argument for any province. Medical expenditures as a fraction of government expenditures in the province of Ontario ate up about 25% when it got going. You know, government sort of took over. Here are the listed services. And they found out after a year or so, it was costing about 25% of the whole provincial budget to supply people with so-called free medical care. Today, it's almost 50%. In other words, this thing is being, has been growing like Pac-Man and eating its way through provincial bud- budgets everywhere in Canada. What's the reaction to that? Well, you know, rationing, longer wait times, that kind of thing. Fewer CT machines and scanners and beds and nurses and all that kind of slow, quiet stuff, which end, which means you end up with a less than adequate medical response to the needs of your country. But we will never let it go. I was at a conference recently, an academic conference, and one of the professors has said to me, I didn't really want to engage with him because he was so angry. And I, I get upset when people... They can't separate their emotions from their arguments. You know, he said, well, he said, why should the money in your pocket dictate the kind of medical care that you receive? And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, why do you apply that standard to medical care, but not to food or not to the type of apartment or home or car or shoes or clothing that you get to buy, let alone your, your boat or whatever it is you like to buy or your skis why why is why is the only thing you're applying that to is medical care? Because money obviously makes a difference to everybody and everything they buy. I said, even you, I said, I bet you when you go into a grocery store to look for food, you don't buy the most expensive thing on every shelf. You're always looking for something that makes sense to you financially. One of the things so my 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 audience here will be primarily socially conservative, libertarian. What what does a Canadian do looking not only at the current situation and the current election where a lot of people are going to be inclined towards Bernier? I don't vote for anybody who's pro-choice, so I'll be voting for the People's Party of Canada because my PPC candidate is pro-life and the Conservative MP is pro-choice. So that my, my decision is pretty 
is pretty simple because I'm not a one issue voter, but I do have a, a sort of a red button issue, which is that if if they oppose me on 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 human life, then then I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote elsewhere. But besides voting, which doesn't mean a whole lot in this country, to be very blunt, what what should Canadians do? Right, your your analysis in your books and, and now is, is is pretty dismal. What what do you suggest? That, how do you suggest people respond to all of the information we've just covered in the last forty minutes or so? Well, I want to defend myself and my books by saying that you can't write the kind of books that I do unless unless you love your country and feel a great deal of hope for it. But the hope has to come from clarity of thinking and insight, not from flag waving and um, and so on. So the whole purpose of my work for the last thirty years. Has, has been to try to enlighten Canadians as to what's actually going on. And all I can say by way of, excuse me, self-congratulation is that when I hear them talk to me about any of my books that they've read, you know what they say? And it always makes the stand, the hair stand up on the back of my neck. They say, you put into words all the things I've been thinking and feeling. And boy, do I feel good about that. I mean, how could you do better as a writer than putting into words the things that people have been thinking and feeling but hadn't been able to put into words themselves because, you know, they have a life they have to live and they're not going to run off and do all the research and reading and thinking about it that I've done. So to me, that was a service to my people of which I'm I'm very proud. Maybe your next question would be something like, okay, so where is it going? How are you going to vote? How are we going to get out of this? I guess I'm going to have to vote strategically. I want to get rid of the baby, the baby in Parliament, uh, Trudeau. You know, I want to th- I want to throw the baby out, but not the not the bathwater, maybe. So, and I think, for example, Bernie would be a really interesting man to have in power, but I don't think it's going to happen yet. When he gets closer, I'll probably vote for him. But it depends on which riding you're in, right? You're th- you don't want to throw away your vote if you can use it to get rid of Trudeau which is what I will do. Yeah, no, if I was one riding over, I'd, I'd vote for Leslie Lewis, who I was very enthusiastic about. But because I'm in I'm in, a, in, in the riding over from her, there's a, a pretty lackluster conservative who doesn't share my social values. And I'm just not going to reward him with my vote. If if we believe, as we do, that the vote was, you know, fought, uh, you know, fought for and, and people died for it and democracy is so precious that I am I'm not going to throw it away on somebody who, who doesn't doesn't deserve it. I, I do agree with strategic voting 100%, but I won't take it so far as vote for somebody who is the antithesis of what I believe, you know, actually actually symbolizes a country worth living in where everybody's protected. Well, on the abortion file, my friend Ian says that's why he thinks of modern Canada as an evil country. And I would agree with that. It's it's Canada's, it's sort of like, it's the sin, the evil that goes on behind behind closed doors. And again, the frustrating part about Canada is it's not like there's this massive homogenous group of people who are as radical as as Trudeau and the abortion activists on this issue. Trudeau, of course, in his platform says he'll defund crisis pregnancy centers, which are just there to help out women who want other options. It's it's like they all are pro-abortion and quite overtly so. And I, and I always suspected that this is because his mother had an abortion. His father was the one who decriminalized it back in 1969. Abortion is very much a fundamental part of of the Trudeau family legacy. And he's sort of carrying it on from there. His father was, you know, and you know, I've discussed this before, so we don't need to go into it now. But I maintain that the modern democracies, every one of them, I think there's no exceptions, has mutated. It's a good word, I think. Not 
not consciously changed into, but has mutated into a system I, I describe as libertarian socialism. And the poster boy for libertarian socialism was Pierre Trudeau. In his own person, he was as libertarian as they come. He was fine with homosexuality. He didn't personally, as a Catholic, like abortion. In fact, you'd be surprised to know that I have a quote from him where he was talking with some radical feminist about this. And and she said, well, I support abortion because, you know, it's my choice, my body and all that. And he said, but madam, he said, we're talking about someone else's body. And she, he just brought her to a complete halt. So he was not in favor of abortion as a Catholic, but he was as a politician. And he was a very libertarian guy. I mean, his own biographer, Richard Gwynn, has section in, in his book in which he describes Pierre Trudeau as being at a social party around a swimming pool with lots of male and female dignitaries and friends, just took off his clothes, stark naked, and jumped in the pool. I mean, it, it didn't bother him at all. And, he, and he, if it bothered someone else, he figured tough, tough, tough on you, you know? Right, right. That, that's it. So he was, your, he was your personal libertarian, but he believed that in terms of social policies, every Canadian should have an equal shot at whatever the government could provide equally. And of course, it can't provide everything equally unless it was completely totalitarian, but it can try to provide, you know, medical care equally and balance incomes provincially and that kind of thing. So he did both. So he's the one who started Canada on the road to what I think is justly described as libertarian socialism. Everything within the boundary of your own skin is up to you. You can do what you want with your drugs, your sex, your homosexuality, your easy abortion, your easy divorce, you name it. It's all up to you. But when it comes to anything the government can provide, reasonably provide the people in equal measure, coast to coast, it's up to the government. And we're going to take lots of your money to make sure that we can do that. So here we have this combination that I call libertarian socialism, which is now operative in every country in the modern world. And you know what's the problem with it is? People really like it. They like the government staying out of their bedrooms, out of their bodies out of their personal appetites, let them be as free as little children, gorging themselves on everything personal. But when it comes to anything that can be made into a public public good, then that's not your business. That's the government's going to do it, and they're going to take a lot of your money to make it happen. People like that. And this you're never going to reverse it because people like it. You're never going to see the truly libertarian state, for example. You're never going to see the best form of government, according to people like Henry Thoreau, who said the best form of government is the least. We're not going to see minimal government ever, because people like libertarian socialism. The secret to pleasing the people at the same time as we bring them huge government has been found. How high the the fireplace is in their home, their permits for this and for that, we're going to regulate the hell out of you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Bill Gardner. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to take a look at our past podcasts for conversations like this, you can go to wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to lifesightnews.com and click on the podcast tab to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.